Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we welcome people of all religions, ethnic origins, sexual orientations, abilities, and other circumstances. I want to extend a special welcome to our visitors this morning. We're glad you're here. We come from a long tradition that sees a spark of the divine in each of us. And so let us greet the holy by turning to our left and our right and greeting the people near us. Please join me in our words that we say together when we light our chalice. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. Our opening words come from our own Chris Jimerson. When our streets are ablaze with the fires of justice denied, we gather here to create a community of justice that will emanate beyond these walls. When mothers grieve and our young fall victim to violence and disease, we come into this place to discover new ways of creating beloved beloved community in our world. When our hearts are heavy, we find sanctuary here. We find nourishment and renewal here. Come into this sanctuary of hope. Come into this community of justice. Come imagine what we might become together. Unitarian Universalists tend to have a variety of ways of viewing the world. We come from a lot of different traditions. Some of us are non-theistic humanists, some of us may be Buddhists, some of us are neo-pagans, and just about any other worldview you might care to think about. So it's often asked, what holds us together? And in trying times like these, I think it's important to think about what binds us together. I think we have a set of values that does so. We have our seven principles that do so. And here at First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin, we have a shared sense of purpose. We have a shared mission. We put it on our wall and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our reading this morning is by Wayne B. Arneson. Take courage, friends. The way is often hard, the path is never clear, and the stakes are very high. Take courage, for deep down there is another truth. You are not alone. I've always been kind of a science and technology nerd. So now that I've told you that, it might not surprise you to hear that many, many years ago, I found myself so excited to test out my new handheld digital organizer that you could plug this accessory into and turn it into a cell phone and wireless internet-enabled device. It was sort of a prehistoric precursor to today's smartphones. The whole thing assembled together was about the size of my head. I dutifully entered the contact information for my friends and co-workers from out of the paper address book I had previously been using. In those days, I'd been working for several years in HIV, AIDS, treatment, research, and advocacy. 
In those days, we didn't have many approved treatments for the disease, and the ones that we did have didn't work very well. Fast forward about five years, and thanks to the efforts of lots and lots of people, we were starting to have drug combinations that were working, that were keeping people alive. I was syncing my contacts onto a new device by this time, an actual early smartphone called a Trio, and I realized that there were a bunch of them that I needed to delete because they represented people who were no longer living. I deleted 37 names that day. 37 friends and co-workers for whom five years had been too long to wait, for whom the new drugs hadn't come soon enough. Only one of them was over 40 years of age when he died. In the years since, every so often I've, I've looked back on that time and wondered how people in HIV-related work kept going. Amongst all the sickness and death, how did we sustain the fight and, and stay in the struggle when at times it seemed like it might never end, never get better? Ultimately, I, I think it was because even in the midst of all the dying, we chose life. We tried our best not to withdraw, not to look away from the suffering, not to sanitize the messiness or anesthetize the pain because to do so would not be living, not really, not fully. We stayed in the struggle and let ourselves experience and remember the losses even as they accumulated because it was the only way to keep fully living, to keep the ability to love without limits, to wholly experience joy, to keep being able to see beauty. Tomorrow is World AIDS Day, a time when we're asked to stop and remember we pause to recognize the real and often unspoken heroes who have stayed in the struggle and helped bring about vast improvements in our ability to prevent HIV infection and to offer treatment to those who are infected. We recommit to the ongoing worldwide struggle against a disease that still affects far too many people. This morning, though, I think also... It's a moment to look back on those difficult earlier times of which I just spoke because they may contain lessons that can inform how we fulfill our mission, especially that part of it that compels us to do justice, to work for social change in so many different areas. Certainly, given the events of the past week, to speak out against systemic racism and structural oppression. Let's begin then by taking a moment now to pause and remember. A time of silent reflection. A time of meditation or prayer, if you wish, or simply to focus on your breathing as we join together in the silence.
I invite you now to light candles in our window, candles of joy or sorrow, hope or remembrance. There are an estimated 35 million people living with HIV worldwide and 2.1 million new infections each year. And while we now have the ability to manage the disease and keep HIV-infected people healthy, there are still far too many people who don't have access to these life-saving treatments and far too many we haven't reached with HIV prevention education. Here in Texas, the rate of new infections among young gay and bisexual men has more than doubled in recent years, at least partially, I think, to a reduction in prevention messages resulting from our current political climate. I think it's important always to remember, though, that behind all the statistics, there are actual individual human lives. One of the lessons we learned in the early days of the struggle against HIV is the power of remembering and telling stories from those lives. Storytelling is an essential element of any social change effort, it's a powerful way to raise consciousness, especially in the face of ingrained prejudice and systemic oppression. So I'd like to share with you briefly just part of the story of a couple of those 37 people I mentioned earlier. Raul was a friend and co-worker who had moved to Houston from Puerto Rico as a young adult. He was a whiz at all things computer-related, a relative rarity in those days because it was early on, and having a computer on every desk in the office was still fairly new. I had hired Raul to work with me on maintaining the documentation on human ethics that was required of us by the government for the HIV treatment studies we were conducting at a nonprofit organization in Houston. Roel was also a disc jockey, so in his off time he was working with a vocal coach and an English language instructor because he wanted people to be better able to understand him when he made announcements while he was doing gigs as a DJ. Now a few blocks away from the office where Raul and I were, we had a clinical space where our research nurses and the volunteer physicians saw the people who were actually participating in the research study. Our head researcher's uh, nurse's name was James. How, how in the world do I give you the full effect of what was James? He was in his early 30s. He somehow managed to get his hair to stand up to about here and then fold it back in a kind of semi-tidal wave. He wore a ring on every finger of his right hand and had been known to show up at work in a full-length fur coat even when it wasn't very cold out. James could be kind of, oh, how do I say this nicely? A dingbat. He was also the best research nurse we ever had, and our patients absolutely loved him. I remember one day we had just gotten James a computer and printer for his office, and he was trying to set them up. Raul and I were over in our office working on some particularly detailed paperwork, and the phone kept ringing, and it would be James calling to complain that he couldn't get his printer to work. This went on all morning until I finally just said, you know, Raul, go over there and get the darn thing working for him. 
Roll left, and a few minutes later, the phone rings, and it's James again about something else this time. And as we're talking, I can hear Raul in the background say, in perfect English, you silly queen, you have to plug it in. (laughs) I laughed, and even James giggled and admitted that his printer would probably work better connected to a source of electricity. It was only about six months later that Raul started getting sick. He fought it until the very end. Even after his doctor had placed him in hospice care, he never really accepted that he was dying. I guess most 27-year-olds wouldn't. A couple of years later, James was gone too. Now These are difficult and they're painful stories, and yet they're part of a much larger narrative, a story that, while encompassing great loss and sorrow, also reveals a defiant sense of hope among a growing community of people who refuse to allow disease, discrimination, and irrational fear to triumph, refuse to accept the notion that it was somehow our own fault for being who we are, refuse to accept that our lives didn't matter. That people of color have had to raise their voices once again and proclaim very similar sentiments over the last two weeks has seemed so eerily familiar. It's been heartbreaking. Raul and James were a part of a community community of folks who came together to struggle against what at the time seemed almost impossible odds. In those early days of the epidemic, it was primarily what we called the gay community, but it was much broader than the gay men who were being so devastated by the disease. I will always be so grateful to the gay women who joined the fight and took care of their ailing brothers, even though they themselves were at relatively low risk for HIV. Likewise, I'll always be grateful to the folks who weren't gay, but who joined in this community of hope and struggle out of compassion and a sense that we're all in this together, even though they risk being ostracized themselves by doing so. In Houston, it was a bunch of folks from the Unitarian Universalist Church who often volunteered with us at the research clinic. I remember one young woman actually was fired from her job for doing so. Seems really sort of unbelievable now, but then I just look at the hysteria and prejudice surrounding only a few Ebola cases here in the U.S., and again, it all seems so eerily familiar. Recent scholarship on how successful change movements occur asserts that creating real change requires us to do at least three things. First, to provide services and support to help those who are being harmed by the social problem until the change can be made. Second, to raise our voices, to speak prophetically, to speak truth to power and dismantle oppressive structures and institutions. And third, to realize that those first two things are necessary, but they're not sufficient. 
that to bring about real and lasting change, we have to build new institutions, new ways of doing things, new social policies to replace those that we've criticized. And we have to do all of this at all levels, from community organizing to building powerful institutions at the state, national, and even worldwide level. As we have seen in Ferguson, Missouri, and indeed across our nation in these past weeks, sometimes the very institutions meant to provide justice have themselves been permeated with racism and injustice. So we have to envision new institutional forms and policies. We have to build a new way. That early community that joined together in the struggle against HIV disease did exactly that. When the government wasn't providing adequate HIV prevention messages, they created them. When there were far too few clinics for HIV testing, counseling, and treatment, they built them. When the existing research institutions were too slow to test promising new treatments and get them to folks who had run out of options, they created community-based research organizations. When the disease spread to new populations, they were the first to adapt and to invite new people into the leadership of the movement. When there was no voice in the halls of power in Washington, D.C. for those suffering from the disease, they stormed the barricades and built institutions with real political power. They built new ways. And I think that this idea of creating institutions, building new ways that may not yet exist, can inform how we do justice regarding a variety of social challenges, whether it's dismantling systemic racism or it's our struggle to save a severely threatened planet. During the first Bush presidency, a group of us had gone to Washington, D.C. to participate in a march on the Capitol to demand greater support for HIV prevention, treatment, and research. On the day before the march, we went to see a display of the AIDS memorial quilt, which had been laid out on the National Mall across from the Capitol. The quilt was built of rectangular panels sewn by the loved ones of people who had died of AIDS. You can see a picture of it on the mall on the cover of your order of service. Often they had sewn in photos and other mementos and used fabric from something their loved one had worn to commemorate them. The crowd that day was a patchwork of people, much like the quilt itself. Gay, straight, a variety of nationalities and ethnicities, men and women who had lost partners and spouses, parents who had lost children. As we walked around the panels, above the noise of our murmured conversations, a group assembled on an outdoor stage that they had put together nearby, and one by one they walked up to a microphone and started reading names. The names of each of the dead represented by each of the panels on the quilt. And after only a short moment, a quiet fell over the crowd. We became very still, standing there in silence and a sense of timeliness, timelessness, until only the sound of the names being read remained. 
I wasn't very religious at the time, but looking back on it now, I can certainly see how terms like the Holy Spirit came into being because it was as if a spirit was moving among us during the reading of those names, and together we somehow all knew, each of us, that we had to keep going. We had to sustain the fight. We had to stay in the struggle until there were no more quilt panels to be sewn, no more names to be read, no more contacts to be deleted. And even in our sorrow, maybe even because we were allowing ourselves to fully feel it, there was a beauty that we could still see. Looking back on it now, it was a moment of clarity that informs me even today. To do justice and to make community and nurture the spirit far from being opposing dualities, these efforts They need each other. Together, they form spiritual experience. They sustain us, and they help us to stay fully engaged. And though, as I outlined earlier, there is still much work to be done, people stayed in the struggle against HIV disease, many of them for 30 years now, and they have made and are making huge differences throughout the world, even up against what at one time seemed impossible odds. They built new ways. And so can we. Whether we are doing justice in our world or facing the challenges of our daily lives, even when the way forward seems long and difficult, as it has for many of us this past week, we can't give in to despair. In fact, These may be the times when it's most vital to stay in the struggle, to live fully, to love without limits, to wholly experience joy, to find ways to keep seeing beauty. I think that's what religious community is for. We help each other live in these ways. These are the ways that will move us toward creating those institutions of compassion and justice. These are the ways through which we nurture our spirits. These are the foundation upon which we build. Amen. Please say with me our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Know that as you go back out into the world now, there is a love that you carry with you beyond these church walls. Know that The great mystery of our interconnectedness cultivates seeds of hope for justice and compassion. Know that boundless possibilities are still ours to create. Go in peace. Go in love. Go knowing that this beloved community awaits you and holds you until we are together again.
This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.